this from the letter to James in chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. So I've been in a lot of United Methodist churches. I don't believe I've ever been in one where there was not across a congregation sort of a continuum of people from different parts of the socioeconomic scale. I have found in United Methodist churches that just as this letter of James talks about, people make a real effort to welcome one and all alike. In one church I serve, one day a man came in that I did not know, others maybe knew, I don't know that anyone knew him personally. His clothes didn't quite fit, they were kind of mismatched, a little bit tattered. His hair was long and tangled, his beard was untrimmed. Most greeted him warmly. Some looked upon him with a little more skepticism, thinking he's only coming for the food we have on Sunday morning. But we welcomed him, and he came to worship for several weeks. And then one Sunday, he wandered into a Sunday school class and sat down with them. He sat there for several weeks listening to lessons. And then he spoke up. And this man had the most remarkable biblical knowledge of anybody in the class. He had an uncanny ability to cite scriptures and had them memorized, could say them out loud without looking at his Bible. He enriched the whole class when he would share. It was truly amazing. He became a part of that church. He became a part of that class. They had welcomed him in, and he was one of us and continued with them for the rest of his life. James wants us to think about how we treat rich and poor, whether or not we show faith to all or favoritism 
to some. Throughout this month, we'll be looking at passages from James. He paints these different contrasts. The accusation against the Christians in this group that we're talking about this morning is that they fawn over the rich to the neglect of the poor. You heard it from the very beginning of that chapter in verse 1 when he said, My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Then he begins to describe how they might treat people differently. By the time he gets down to verse 4, he's asking, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Pretty strong words that he's saying. Then by the time he gets to verse 6, he's ready for his conclusion. He says, You have dishonored the poor. It's clear he has some very negative thoughts about what this group of Christians is doing. But the context is not really clear in terms of who he's writing to. In fact, we don't know for sure who he is. If you have your Bible there, if you look at the very beginning of chapter 1, he identifies himself, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Some think this is the brother of Jesus who became a leader in the Jerusalem church after the resurrection. But it doesn't say all of that here. It could be that James. It could be another And then we think about, so who is he writing to? So many of the letters we have are to a particular group of Christians. This says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So it's people who have been rooted in the Jewish tradition who now are believing in Christ. And this James is trying to make sure they understand that knowing Christ is to change their behavior. Now, it's helpful to know that in the first century, when this is being written, that there's this sharp demarcation between the rich and the poor, not a thriving middle class, but great distinctions. And so much of the biblical literature is written in a way that assumes that someone who has wealth has gotten it by spurious means, either by illegal ways or overtaxation or land acquisition or crop acquisition where the rich and powerful have taken advantage of the poor. But it's interesting, after he describes the rich and the poor and how people might treat them differently because of their wealth or lack thereof, the remedy he offers is not an economic remedy. The remedy is rather hospitality to all. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says that's what should be your guide. That should be the way that you behave, whether rich or poor. Love your neighbor. And presumably all who are coming to the assembly or what we would call the church are to be considered your neighbor. So love or do good for each and every one. Treat everyone the same. And if we stopped reading right there, that would be fine. But those who appoint these scriptures for the lectionary add verse 14 through 17. And that kind of changes the advice. So the advice we have on the one hand is to treat everyone the same at the church. On the other hand, the love command that came in verse 8 has further implications which are based on wealth. Then he begins to talk about treating the poor in a special way. 
But then, I guess he was inspired and writing and maybe feeling really fired up. He adds this rhetorical flair and Verse 14, when he writes, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? Now, he's not been talking about salvation. He's been talking about how we treat each other at church, presuming everyone's already saved. But then he throws in this question. Can faith save you? And James' answer seems to be no. But the center, the mainstream of Christian theology says, yes, exactly, you are saved by grace through faith. Last month we were reading through the letter to the Ephesians, and that letter reminds us over and over, yes, you are saved by grace through faith. That's what it's all about. James seems to come at this from a different angle, except besides that one sentence the whole rest of the argument has nothing about how we come to salvation it's all about what we do once we have come to know jesus christ and what we say as christians especially since the reformation the 1500s is that god's offer to us god's love and mercy and forgiveness are offered to us without price that we are saved by grace you can think of stories from the Gospels like the prodigal son. You remember that story Jesus tells of the loving father that has much wealth, has two sons. The younger one asks for all of his inheritance. Give me my share now. And the father graciously does so. And the boy takes it and leaves the country. You remember, he spends it willy-nilly. He wastes it all in riotous living, one translation says. And then he finds himself out of money. Only work he can find is with the pigs. A famine strikes the country. Everything is terrible. And he thinks, I would be better off at home, at my father's place, even as a slave. So he gets up and heads home thinking that he'll become a servant or a slave for his father. And Jesus, as he tells the story, says the father sees the son coming from far off and runs out to greet him and hug him and welcome him back into the family. It's a story of love and grace, even when we have made vast mistakes there's another son, of course, who stayed there and worked diligently, but he has a bad attitude. The father loves him as well and says, all I have is yours as well. Love and grace extended to both of them. Stories of love and grace and rest and healing and welcome run throughout the gospels jesus offers the perspective that god loves sinners that is all of us or you can think of the passage in matthew in chapter 11 where jesus is teaching and he says come to me all all of you who are weary or heavy laden and i will give you rest it's a gospel of salvation by grace. James 
even though he asked the question about salvation, is really talking about faith after that. How do we live once we've experienced God's grace come alive in our lives through Jesus Christ? How do we live once we have made a commitment to be a follower of Jesus Christ and live the way of Christ, live the way of serving others in the name of Christ, doing our best to embody the love of God we have come to know through Christ and pour it into the lives of others. James' suggestion in the second chapter is that we should treat the poor differently by offering them specific help to meet their needs. His argument does not revolve around, are you saved by grace or works? Rather, he's asking a question, something like this. I put it in your outline. After you have encountered grace in Christ, does it change the way you live and relate to others? James' answer, his answer is your faith should show itself in works or good deeds. So how are you supposed to treat those who come to church with grace, with great welcome, Treating them well, doing good for them. And when he gets down here in the very last portion of what we read, he asks this other very specific question, but he's getting at the same thing. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? Right, that's a question about what we do after we have come to faith. How do we treat people we encounter who are in need? How do we respond out of our faith? How has that changed us in terms of our relationships? But it's all about after we have come to faith. How will you act after you have encountered grace? Will you treat all with love are you ready to extend the love you have known the grace the peace the mercy the forgiveness you have known in christ to others one of our bishops minerva cacano writes about a time where she was with some united methodist youth from one of the churches in her area she said she found herself on a saturday morning down on her knees digging in the dirt planting some flowers she says she was there with this youth group because she had heard this story about what had happened in their lives they had gone as a group one day to a homeless shelter to feed those who were there they got into an extended conversation with one particular man his name was ernie after they had had a meal together they were getting along so well they asked can we pray with you and he said sure and they prayed together he asked them where do you all go to church they said the place and they said would you like to come he said oh i would but i don't have transportation so the youth went back to their church talked to their parents Someone volunteered to go and get him on the next Sunday, and Ernie began to come to church with them. They realized he needed some help getting a job. So some of the parents worked with him, filing applications, making applications for jobs, making sure he had clothing that looked like he was ready to take a job. One of them even volunteered to drive him and sit with him as he waited for his interviews. 
After a while, Ernie got a job. Now he had steady income, a place to go, but he still needed transportation. Another family in the congregation said, we have a car we're not using. We'll loan it to him to drive until he, until he starts getting his checks, and then he can make payments and purchase the car from us. So they set all that up, worked all of that out. Now Ernie's working, has steady income. The congregation wants to help him have his own home. They work with him to file applications, to get a bank loan, and finally buy a brand new mobile home. Bishop Cacano says it was outside that mobile home where she was helping this youth group who had now gone to this house to help make it a home. They were planting flowers on this small piece of property that was now part of his life and part of his future. The bishop writes that it was amazing watching how these young people interacted with their new friend. I want to read you a few sentences. She writes, These young people and Ernie treated each other like family. She says she was amazed at the ease at which so many different people were interacting. As she listened and worked with them, she said, Watching and listening, I realized that Ernie and these young people had, in the spirit of the historic Eucharistic prayer, become one. For generations, Christian disciples have prayed that they might become one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world. That prayer had been fulfilled in this wondrous community of faith between young people and a once homeless man. The love among them was deep and authentic. At one point in the day, the bishop says she had a chance to talk to Ernie alone, and he said these young people gave him a new life by loving him with the very love of Christ Jesus. But then she said later when she was talking to the young people, they gave a different story. They said it was Ernie who had showed them the love of Jesus Christ. They said he taught us about life and the sustaining grace of God and how we can trust in God in all circumstances. The bishop concludes the generous love of God being shared in the name of Christ had transformed them all. It had changed Ernie's choices and behaviors and transformed his life. It had affected these young people and their experience of what it means to serve Christ, to share the love of God with others. And the bishop said, it transformed me that day as well and renewed my faith. To see these young United Methodists learning how to serve in such real and tangible ways that make a difference. May our knowing Christ transform us all.